And so this kind of leads me on to look at the community. You've mentioned that quite a lot. And you you talk about that again a lot in your book and how important it is. And it's something that I'm seeing more and more in organisations and certainly learning areas and learning communities of practice. And you talk about the purpose of the community as well as our individual roles within it. Tell me a little bit more about that in maybe an organisation that's struggling to update so what are the challenges that they have? What are the pitfalls they're falling into with regards trying to perhaps lock down a community? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, again, uh, super interesting. You have to uh, forgive me for being excited about it. But I, I, I find, the, you know, the ways that we explore what this all means are just so interesting. Um, in fact, I, I was talking to someone at the weekends and they, they were asking about work. And I said, you know, my work is really about sort of radically complex social systems. And they said, well, you know, what's what's a radically complex social system? I said, well, every social system is radically complex, you know, because it's it's between us. It's complicated. We're complicated beings. There's It comes through clearly in the research, the trust research. You know, these are not logical spaces. It, it may be absolutely logical for me to trust you, and yet I might not. And you may go out of your way to try to make me trust you. And the net result of that is most likely that I will trust you less. I'll think somehow you're trying to manipulate me. It's, it's really clear that social systems are complex. And also, they're multi-layered and often internally conflicted. So, you know, right now at this moment, I may trust you implicitly. But today, in another context, I may trust you less. So if you were my boss, you know, and we were just having this chat, sat in a coffee shop, reflecting on the nature of work, I may say things and trust you with those things I say. But if we were sat later in the day in a room together and you were doing my annual performance review, I would be projecting an entirely different personality, an entirely different sense of consequence. The very nature of our relationship would have changed. So. It's clear um, that there are a few features of of social communities that are very clear. Um, The first is that we are members of many different communities. And in each of those communities, we serve a different role. And each of those communities carries a different purpose. So to give you some examples of that, in some communities, you may be a source of, of knowledge. You know, you may have particular expertise. You may be a coaching figure. You may demonstrate high empathy. You may nurture conversations. You may be the person that brings challenge. You may be an interconnector, somebody who who makes introductions through to, to other communities. There's all sorts of different roles, and they tend to be very fluid in, in how we take them. But then on top of that, what we see is that um, some communities are very temporary. They come together, they serve a purpose, and they disperse. Some communities are very permanent. They persist persist almost throughout our lifetimes. So let's ground this back into the organization. When organizations look at social learning, and you know, I work with some of the biggest organizations in the world looking at how they do this, they they often talk about learning communities when what they actually mean is a piece of learning technology, or they mean a, a group of people put together to serve a purpose. But that's not a community. A community is a series of conversations, of bonds of trust, of respect, 
a, a flow of knowledge, a, a reciprocity in action. You know, communities are really complex systems. Now, the other major research project I've been doing over the last year has been specifically in the NHS. And this has been looking at communities, the communities that people use in order to be effective. And it's very interesting. I'll just share a couple of the results from it. Um, The first thing is uh, I asked people what their most valuable communities were and defined value as the ones that helped them to be effective. They said that their most valuable communities are informal ones. They're not ones given to them by the organization. They are informal communities. The top 20% most valuable communities are ones that they would never have found by looking around. They're ones that they were invited into. So people say, somebody reached out to me. They said, I've got a group of people here thinking about this challenge. We think you could be part of the conversation. They're invited into those communities. Um, When we asked them to estimate uh, what the primary focus of those communities were, uh, in the high 90s, in the high 90% was they are conversations of improvement. These are conversations where communities are trying to make things better. Um, And they said the most important thing in those highest value communities was the choreography of engagement, the way that they are welcomed into the community. Now, all of that's an argument for why communities are important. Clearly, individually, we think communities are very important. But now let me flip it another way. We looked at the technologies people use to connect. So we asked them about the technologies, the social collaborative technologies they used every day. And they identified within that NHS population 17 different technologies that they used on a daily basis between them, of which 16 weren't owned or controlled by the NHS. So 16 of the 17, they were explicitly forbidden from using to talk about uh, you know, client, uh, patient data or, or, or sensitive subjects, but they used those technologies to hold their community. And this, for me, illustrates the vast gulf between what organizations describe as communities and what we ourselves natively understand to be communities. For us, a community is a trusted network held beyond technology, facilitated by technology, but held in bonds of trust. So if organizations really want to leverage the power of social learning, and if they really want to become socially dynamic, they have to move beyond a mindset of technology and control into a mindset of facilitation, enablement, and relinquishing power. So that's really fascinating about the communities and how people get into them, what they find most valuable, and the technologies that they're using to enable that, especially with that 16 of the 17 were were kind of disallowed by the NHS. So when we're thinking on behalf of the organisation about, you know, we've got, so we've got this Julian Stodd guys come in and told us just how important social leadership and social learning and the social organisation is, and I'm totally behind it, but I've got to be aware that I don't want people sharing uh, patient data, sharing confidential information, potentially um, bringing our information to competitors. How do you marry those two things up and get the organisation comfortable, which usually would be some kind of senior management, and enable what you are describing as communities to actually thrive? Yeah, and and I'll I'll sort of start by 
I'll challenge a couple of the premises of your question almost. You know, so I'm not describing what communities are. This is what people are describing their communities are. And the reason I say that is because, you know, I've, I've presented this data back in the NHS and I had one of the, you know, a, a head of governance sort of saying, I'm very unhappy that you're advocating that our people should use these technologies. And I, and I think that that represented exactly what the problem is. I'm not advocating it at all. This is what your people told me they are doing. And they're not alone. You know, when I've, I've done this research in, for example, US uh, special forces communities, and the number one technology they say they use to collaborate is WhatsApp, despite it being, you know, explicitly forbidden to do so. Uh, and they do it not because they're bad people trying to do bad things. They do it for exactly the same reason as the doctors and nurses and hospital porters do it. They do it because they are good people trying to do an even better job. So, you know, partly I'd say this is not a problem that we are creating. We should be humbled by the fact that people are now willing to share with us that that's what they do. But, to your, you know, to your point about what should an organization do about this, it you know, it's a good question because I would say what they have to do is redesign themselves. You know, at heart, I would go so far as to say that most of the organizations we're surrounded by in the world today, including most of the organizations that, you, you know, those, those of you listening to this are working within, most of them will probably fail. They will fail to adapt. I, I say that because organizations have historically failed. And when faced with such a, a paradigm shift as they're experiencing today, they will fail not because they lack insight, not because they don't understand that the world is changing. The reason they'll fail is because the existing structures of power and control, the empires that people exist within, will hold them constrained until the end. And, and that's a sort of a, a sad truth. And I'm not saying that in any way to be sort of dramatic or, or excitable. It's just a natural feature of social systems that they nest within structures of power. And good people in good organizations nonetheless get trapped within systems that reward them for holding power within the system at the very time when the thing they need to learn to do is change in the social system. There's a reason why so many of our organizations are going through reorganization and change. It's because they are maladapted to the world around them, to the challenge they face. But remember, the, the, the multi-billion dollar change industry largely fails to deliver change. And the reason it fails to deliver change is because all it tries to do is change the formal system. It redraws the box that you sit in and the box that I sit in. It, it sells an office and buys a new office. It gives you a new laptop or it fires you. But what it doesn't do is shift the social structure underneath it. And that's where we really exist. I mean, really, organizations are a fiction. They're a made up, convenient, structure of organization but the thing we should remember is that we can make up a new one you know once the the design of the organizations that we have today based around domain specific power ownership of technology and infrastructure and control 
once that becomes redundant because of the new paradigms of the social age, then we should invent a new and better type of organization. And that, as far as I'm concerned, is, is where our salvation lies, you know, to, to reinvent from an organizational design perspective, from a structure of power, structures of learning, structures of trust and collaboration. We need new types of organization. And the only thing which is going to get in the way of us building them is ourselves, because we live within existing organizations which are inherently resistant to change.